0: Hi, I'm Astrid and welcome to Let's Chat Cash, a podcast about women and their money. Each episode is a frank and open discussion with one woman about her personal relationship with money. My hope is that by having these conversations, we can break down some of the stigma of talking about money and empower each other as women to take more control over our finances. This week's episode is with online content creator and freelance social media producer, Sanna Vliegenhardt. Sona runs a very successful YouTube channel called Books and Quills, and at the time of recording has amassed an audience of 170,000 subscribers. As the name suggests, Sanna’s channel talks a lot about books, but she also discusses travel, films, and career advice. Before Sona made the jump to work as a freelance content creator, she worked at Penguin Random House, which is where I met her, as we actually did the same role at Penguin, just at different times. In this conversation, we discussed how she makes money from YouTube, negotiating rates, financial differences in the UK versus the Netherlands, which is where she grew up, and that most dreaded freelancer task, chasing payments. Stick around to the end for my more money section, where this week I'll be giving some suggestions of tools you can use to help chase payments. And I'll be giving away a tenner, so you'll want to keep listening to find out how to pocket that. But first, I started off by asking Sunna to describe what being an online content creator looks like on a day-to-day basis.
1: It looks quite different day-to-day, so I've only gone freelance about two months back, so that is all still things that I'm trying to figure out day-to-day, like how I... How I kind of divide my day up, but the idea is that I um, I create videos for myself and for companies. Um, I do social media for myself and for companies, and then it can also be hosting workshops, chairing book panels, going to events. So it really, is a mix of being at home creating things and then going out into the world and and doing things like that.
0: Cool. So I guess it kind of I can kind of guess or work out how you make money and an income from doing stuff for companies like when you're freelancing for mm-hmm. companies but I think a lot of people would be really curious as to how you still kind of bring in an income when you're producing stuff that's more for yourself.
1: Yeah definitely so I've had a YouTube channel for about 10 years it's called Books and Quills. I started it in my first year of university and I think Since I moved to London, maybe a couple years after I moved to London, which is six years ago, I've started making money off of that as well. There's obviously AdSense, which is just a little bit of money that you get from ads on YouTube, but that is quite minimal, especially for me, I think. Um, So it's mostly sponsorships. So when there's a specific company that wants to show off a product or a competition they're doing or a service they offer, And then I, you know, find a brand that I really, really like and work with them in that way. And that's kind of where most of the
0: money comes from. Okay, cool. So does that stuff come from them, like, reaching out to you? Or do you do a bit of contacting them? Is it a mix?
1: It's a mix. Sometimes it's agencies that have been paid to contact different YouTubers or bloggers. Sometimes it's companies directly. I actually love working with companies directly because very often I find I get brands that have never worked with YouTubers before, but they want to. They're not sure what they want to do. So they just send a really nice open email saying, we'd like to work with you. We're not sure how. Can you tell us what the deal is? And then I really, really love doing those because usually those end up being really genuine, really free. Because sometimes, even though agencies obviously are really good at what they do, sometimes it can be quite restricting. There's really long contracts. There's really strict deadlines. And sometimes when you work with a company one-on-one, I feel like sometimes it can go really well and sometimes... It can go wrong, but I, I've had really good experiences with the brands that I've worked with. Cool.
0: And so then when you're going out and doing work, I guess, for companies, like what does that kind of look like? What's that shape?
1: Um. So that a lot of it is is video editing. Some of it can be social media scheduling or creating photos or copy or helping them out with their brand image and their tone of voice. And then sometimes it is showing up at an event and doing live coverage or sometimes for festivals it's a chairing discussion with an author or a workshop or something like that
0: cool and so which uh, which do you enjoy most
1: i love doing workshops and i love chairing events and that's something that i'm looking into doing more now that i'm freelance i have more time to invest time in reading those books and and going to those events so i did cheltenham this summer oh, cool. and that was the first time i had done that that was really fun so i got to interview um some really lovely authors there and, and travel to the event so I'd love to do
0: more of that cool and um, so what were some of the I guess factors that you had to think about before going completely freelance hmm.
1: so I'd always been doing my YouTube and like various other freelance things next to either university or a full-time job and um, so for the last five years that had been next to a full-time job and it always gave me some extra income which is really nice Um, But it also meant that I already had a lot of experience doing taxes and just how to kind of run a little freelance business. So it made it less scary, I think. So my main thought was prepare some contacts or think about who I might want to contact and really think about what kind of work I wanted to do. Because there's also some skills that I learned from my full-time job that I'm not super keen to use in my freelance life. There's always things that you like more about your job and things that you don't like as much. So I was... I really, really wanted to not do those things, if that makes sense. So, for example, running Facebook ads is maybe not my favourite thing in the world. So I wanted to cut that out. Mm. And then, obviously, saving was really important. So making sure that I was in a position that I could keep myself stable for, like, a good couple months Mm. before
0: I just went ahead and quit. So, and what, I guess, were some of the factors in terms of, like tax, like now that you're completely out there on your own mm. have there been any bits that have been like oh my gosh I didn't know about this Did you have to research up on that
1: um I think for me a lot of it is I just need to do a lot more prep work even now so a com you know a company might go oh where's your media kit don't have one yet <laughs> or can you send us a pitching document for this and this I haven't really made one before <laughs> yeah. so there's a lot of things that just come up in the moment where I go okay I guess I have to make one of those and I'll figure out how to do it and I'll make it Think very often is just doing it as best as you can and then making it better over time.
0: How do you work out like what your rates are gonna be? Because I think one thing about being out there on your own that's really scary is understanding how I'm gonna set what I'm worth and decide like this is what I will do things for and this is kind of my cutoff point. Yeah.
1: I guess I had a lot of experience with that doing it as a YouTuber, but that is very different because I think when you charge as an online content creator, you're charging for your audience, your personal recommendation, for creating the video, for being in it. There's loads of different things that go into it. And sometimes as a freelancer, you're only doing one or two of those aspects. But then as a freelancer, I always go by a day rate rather than like a set price for a project. Because I guess it's a little bit more tangible as a freelancer where you go, okay, this project will take eight hours. So I'm gonna charge a day rate, or it's going to take a lot more so I'll have to do more days and so that's how I try and explain it to clients as well mm. and then I mostly just asked lots of friends what their day rates were yeah. and then figured out so I was at manager level um, when I left my job so I feel like that like how much experience you have in an industry helps set your day rate as well and then I do have planned that in let's say six months time when I feel even more comfortable with what I'm doing I can up my day rate and, and see how that goes. Mm. And sometimes when people just start out and they sort of ask me, oh, what should I do? I don't have any experience, but I wanna do this. It's like you set a day rate and then if everyone easily accepts it, you up it. Yeah. And then if they keep <laughs> accepting it, you up it. Because obviously that was worth their money. Mm. Um, and I feel like it's so easy to underestimate what your day rate should be. So I tried to intentionally go, higher than what my gut said mm. because I know that you just you're so used to just underestimating how mm. much you should charge mm. do you have any tips
0: on like negotiating like have you ever had someone ask you to do a job that you felt like was a bit low and managed to, like
1: get them off because I haven't done that much as a freelancer yet not really in that area but as a youtuber definitely um I've had emails with certain amounts where then I've had to go and say oh actually the minimum for any project like this is about 10 times what you just offered <laughs> so the offer would be quite low and that wouldn't be me charging really high prices Mm -hmm. like that would even be like a discounted rate for let's say a certain industry Mm -hmm. and it's just because they might not have done any of those collaborations before and then I really try and explain what they're getting Mm -hmm. so like I just said you're getting personal endorsement it's a really good fit for my audience because they're this age or they're interested in this Mm -hmm. I'll also produce this and this I'll give you these stats so people tend to think oh it's just a video so why is it why does it cost this much money and I do also try and explain if you're going to hire a freelancer to make this you'd be paying someone to host, someone to edit, et etc. et cetera. I have rates for people that have come up with something that is so easy to fit with my channel or that I just would love to do anyway that I just give them a lower rate. And I have a rate for people that are extremely rude when they approach um, that just ask for ridiculous things and I just throw out basically like four times my normal rate and see where it lands and then if they do accept it then that's great and then that's a you know it will pay for how annoying it will be to do the work (laughs) it doesn't happen very often it's really really rare but I've had some emails where I just thought you're being absolutely ridiculous and I just throw out the number and see where it lands
0: what happens then if you do this though and you end up having to do this horrible piece of work without ever (laughs) knowing
1: well if it's still horrible I wouldn't do it but it it kind of is an interesting way of kind of testing out the grounds Mm -hmm. I guess Um, but yeah, I think if people are really terrible in their approach, you're
0: not, you're not going to get a good deal. And I think that counts for, for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. That is good advice. So just maybe if you really think someone's taking the Mick, just set it really high and just see. Cause I always think it's always worth seeing because often people do have money.
1: Yeah. And you do sometimes lose a little bit of work over it, but it's worth trying it out sometimes. And again, yeah, if you think everyone's kind of accepting your rate, you're probably undercharging. So it's always worth going a bit higher. And I've, I've had the advice from someone in the past as well who said, you know, if it's a specific opportunity that comes up just once or twice, try it, go up and, and see what they say.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think actually a lot of people watching YouTube might see like a video that's sponsored or whatever and not have that much of a sense of what has gone into it behind the scenes to before it gets to that point. Like it might just be interesting to talk a little bit about the process of mm. saying someone comes to you with a brief for a branded project. Like what kind of stages happen before the audience are gonna see
1: it? I think for me the most important one is figuring out if it's a good fit. Cause there's quite a few random emails or weird offers. So I, I try and go, is this something I would buy myself or something that I genuinely think people are interested in? And then I have to think of an idea of how can I put this in a video or how can I make a fun piece of content that will be helpful for people. And then I am usually come up with one or two ideas and send it to the brand and then we, we try and figure something out. And it usually becomes quite clear whether they just have their mind set on something very specific that's not going to work or if they're happy to kind of figure out together and see how we can both get the best out of it. Yeah. And then there's obviously negotiation about pay, about dates. I write my own little contract, which is probably not very official, but it's better than not having a contract. Yeah, definitely. Especially because I work with a lot of brands who haven't done this kind of thing before. So just write a nice PDF that says delivery date, what they have the right to sort of make changes in and what they don't. So, for example, I want to have veto power over the title of the video. Okay. So I don't want it to have the brand name in it or anything like that. Uh, I indicate how I'm going to say that it's an ad and how I'm going to uh, very clearly put that at the top. Because sometimes brands aren't keen on that. But obviously, really? you have to. Mm. And I prefer to. Yeah, then you kind of go back and forth and hopefully get speedy feedback and they like it. And it's always very important to think about putting things like reshoots in the contract mm. as well. Because it's definitely, I've heard it from other people before where they follow the brief they create something and then the company goes we don't like it you have to do it again oh my gosh what do you do if you haven't discussed it beforehand yeah you usually end up i guess having to do it yeah um so there's a lot of things to just think about what if this goes wrong what if this goes wrong and kind of think it through mm,
0: so there's so many steps that's the thing it does take a lot of time it's and, and just... then yeah
1: and the more you do it the more you kind of figure out the best way to do it and you kind of make a mistake once and then Hopefully never make that mistake again. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. definitely. So now that you're kind of working for yourself, you're kind of like your own little business, do you have to sort of set yourself like a budget in terms of your personal spending? How do you manage that?
1: Um, so I, before I went freelance, one of the things I did is I made a beautiful spreadsheet oh. and I put in all my necessary expenses, as in all my bills, my rent, things that I didn't think about, like my contact lenses that I pay for every month. Those kinds mm-hmm. of little things that come out of my account. And then I looked at that number and I was like, okay. That's more than I thought, first of all, because I hadn't really put it down that specifically before. And then I've also kept a spreadsheet where I put in any big purchase that's over, let's say 20 pounds, that isn't food. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I buy clothes or like electrical equipment or anything like that, it goes into that spreadsheet just so I have an idea. Of whether I'm going overboard or not. Mm -hmm. And I think in general when I went freelance I just thought, okay, I'm just going to have to cut it down a bit. Like I'd really have to go, do I really need this? Do I really want this? And then go with that. Mm. But I think when I did the calculations beforehand with my new day rate, it seemed quite feasible to make at least sort of the same as my previous salary. So in theory, everything should be going good. Except for that now YouTube falls into my normal salary where before it fell into an extra salary on top of my normal salary so I knew I was going to have to cut it down um quite a bit but I don't keep a very specific budget but I do try, try to keep a very good eye on it
0: and you well I don't know if you have mentioned but you're not originally from the UK yeah I'm from the Netherlands so when did you move I moved about six years ago and it was right after
1: I graduated from my master's in um, I studied English lit at university and then for my master's I did translation which I don't really use now um, because it seemed from all the guest speakers we got at university it seemed like a very difficult career to get into really? uh, and very poorly paid as well they didn't encourage it very much yeah, I but I, I do love translation and I do want to use it um, at some point in whatever way I make videos about translation as well so that that's good but yeah I, I moved straight after graduating
0: Cool. and what was some kind of like financial decisions or financial things that you had to consider before moving to like a whole new country?
1: I was quite lucky that I was living with my parents and I lived with my parents all throughout university because my university was really close to my house. It was like 20 minutes by bicycle. Fair Dutch. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I had a really nice part-time job when I was studying. I did private tutoring, which is one of my favorite things I've ever done. I also used to do university... Well, I guess they were high school crash courses. So it was for high school kids who were potentially going to fail their final exam in one subject and their parents will go, okay, you've got one weekend. Whoa. We're going to have to try and get this to a level where you'll pass. So I'd get like six kids. This Whoa. was through a company. I'd get six kids and I'd get like two or three nine hour days with them. And we just have to go like hardcore on like studying and making sure they get through the exam. That always made really good money. Mm-hmm. So I do one or two of those and that would pay for, like, my like, little summer holiday. So that's kind of what I did beforehand to make money because I wasn't making any money off... Well, maybe I was making a tiny bit of money off of YouTube. I'm trying <laughs> to remember. I hadn't done any brand deals or anything like that. But I knew that if I moved to London and for some reason it didn't work out, I could go back to my parents' house. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have any steady job or any sort of idea of what I was going to do in the Netherlands. So it didn't feel like I was leaving that much behind or taking that much of a risk in that specific way. Um, So I definitely saved up because moving country is hard. And I didn't really research it that well, I have to admit, (laughs) because it was kind of a spur of the moment decision where my friend said, I'm going to live in London because I'm going to study there. Do you want to come live with me? Wow. I said, yes, I guess so. And then we went to look at flats and very quickly realised that no one wanted to have us. Because we're both from a different country, didn't have any sort of background check or job or anything like that then found an apartment with some other friends and kind of made that happen and then I suddenly lived in London but I did have savings that I could fall back on and it took me about nine months to find a job so I I was really down to
0: the last Mm. the last pounds Mm -hmm. slash euros what did those nine months teach you about I guess budgeting also about just having to be really like persistent I guess that must have been could have been pretty tough
1: I think I moved in September and around December, January, I hit a big low where I just really thought, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I just, I'm not hearing back from anyone. I'm obviously doing something wrong. But from then on, it started looking up as in I was getting like internships at Penguin. I was being invited to book events and I was getting in touch with publishers and I finally... Felt like I was getting to know some people in the industry. So I think the first couple of months, there was just hardly anything. I was applying for museum jobs. I applied to the Sherlock Holmes Museum. So Never emailed under. me back. <laughs> applied at Lush, like all oh, that. I just applied to. I think I got to a point where I was just applying for anything and everything and still was not hearing anything back. But then, yeah, in the, the second half of those months, um, I started hearing back a bit more and I got a bit more hopeful. But budgeting wise, I think I just had a lot of days where I didn't really spend any money because oh well obviously I was paying rent but rent was quite it was quite okay at that point. We were sharing with four people. It was it was alright. I was living in Hackney and I would just I remember eating pita bread with hummus and lettuce and cheese. And that was when I kept that for lunch and dinner. I was kind of just living like a student I think. That was kind of the the thing that made the most sense and I would go to a lot of like free tours and museums and I would take the bus everywhere. No tube. So expensive. So it would just take like an hour and a half bus to get somewhere. But yeah, I just think I didn't do loads of things that cost a lot of money. So I just tried to keep the, the month-to-month spend really
0: low. And now, obviously, well, as you, you have a little <laughs> bit more disposable income yes. maybe than that, <laughs> um, did, did it kind of leave you with any kind of hangover of not wanting to be, go too crazy on spending? or?
1: I think coming from the Netherlands, I've Dutch people are, no, I'd say it two ways. I say they're very frugal Or they're very uh, thrifty, maybe a bit stingy. (laughs) I think Dutch people have, in general, seem to have the thought that don't spend money on anything that's not necessary, like anything that's too extravagant. Mm -hmm. So I remember, like, as a kid, we wouldn't get, like, a Magnum ice cream. It's like, no, you just get a nice, like, ice lolly, just like a cheap one, because you don't get Magnum, that's for, like, birthdays, that's for... (laughs) So it's that kind of, why would you do something so extravagant? It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I think as a country... Dutch people are quite frugal. So for example, people wouldn't really go out for coffees or doing that kind of thing. Now recently in my hometown, there's been lots of new coffee places Mm -hmm. because before that you you just have coffee at home because why would you go and and pay to have a fancy drink somewhere else? It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I guess, what I grew up with. And then in London, it's just the total opposite because it's drinks and food and people don't really meet at each other's houses and, and do sort of cheap meals and things like that. I mean, obviously some people do, but I think in general, a lot of people tend to, a lot of young people tend to go and go out for drinks and spend a lot of money. So I think I've kind of gone the other way now because when I had a full-time job and YouTube on top of it, I was sort of doing pretty well to a point where I was like, okay, obviously I'm not going to go crazy and spend tons of money, but if I wanted to go on a weekend away, I could, or if I wanted to go out for food, I could. Uh, And now going freelance, I'm sort of having to go back to, okay, okay. Just be a bit more careful, really think about what I'm spending. Um, so yeah, maybe going a little bit back to what it was like before. Yeah.
0: And are there any other kind of big financial differences in terms of like the system from uh, Holland to here? So are there any things that like you have to pay for here that you didn't have to pay for there or things that you would have got like allowances for? There?
1: I think tax is different. But the thing is, I've never been an adult in the Netherlands. So I haven't like I was always under my parents' healthcare. Didn't, I don't really have much experience with the Dutch tax system. So I think you have to pay for healthcare in the Netherlands. It's like a private healthcare system. But obviously here you, you pay in taxes as well. So I don't know the difference of that in the Netherlands. Because I remember moving. My friends were like, oh, have you also calculated in healthcare and all those things? And I sort of said, I think that's covered. Because obviously when I, when I got here, I didn't have a job yet. So I wasn't paying for that yet. The one big difference, I think, as well as university... And how the fees in the Netherlands don't know what they are right now, but when I was studying like six years ago, they were fifteen hundred pounds a year. What? And you also I got a stipend from the from the government, and I think everyone that went to university did.
0: What's the stipend? Where Is you got
1: a um, hundred euros a month if you were living at home, and two hundred and fifty euros a month if you were renting somewhere.
0: Oh, so like a kind of grant, or was that a loan?
1: Um. Well, if you finished your bachelor's within seven years, it was a gift. Wow. Oh. If not, it, it turns into a loan. So if you don't finish your degree, it turns into a loan. And you got, like, a free travel pass. I think they're not doing that anymore. Oh. But I could take, like, any train, any bus, um, anything like that, all across the Netherlands. You have to pick, like, weekends or weekdays. Mm. So I think my parents paid for my university, but I think it's um possible for a lot of people in the Netherlands to have a, a side job and then kind of pay off uni as they go.
0: That sounds like a great system.
1: And also, I guess in the sort of same mindset, is that I don't think overdrafts are a big thing. What do you mean? As in, I didn't personally know anyone that had an overdraft, and I didn't know it existed. Like, I didn't know you could have one. So when I got a bank account here, and they said, do you want an overdraft? I was like, no, I don't want an overdraft, because I didn't... I think a lot of the ideas... People don't really have credit cards in the Netherlands either, so the idea is you only have the money... Obviously, there's people that take out loans. But in general, the idea is you only have the money that you have and you don't go into an overdraft. That seems to be the general mindset. You have to work really hard to get a credit card in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. You have to, like, try to get one.
0: So maybe that's, like, a better system, though, because here you can just get into debt so easily.
1: I just didn't realise that, yeah, students get given a massive overdraft. And then, obviously, if you get given the option, it's so easy to go into that. So, yeah, that was quite a big surprise for me. But I think I was also from a small town where people in general were like pretty well off so it might be different in big cities maybe
0: yeah, yeah. that's interesting um, and what about now as a adult do you set like financial goals for yourself
1: i put so this is the first year i guess that i've put like a proper financial goal on the end of the year i'd put like a number down i wrote it on a piece of paper and i said this is what i'd like to do um because i work well with to-do lists like, writing <laughs> things down and then I decided to go freelance so that went out the window. <laughs> so instead of reaching that goal I reached the goal of going freelance. Actually at the beginning of the year wasn't entirely sure that that was what I was going to do hence why I set that financial goal but I have a like a help to buy ISA that I like two years ago I suddenly went oh I should probably do something like this so I did that and then I think i'm just gonna have to see how the freelance career goes to see what will be a feasible goal to set for myself because i wouldn't really want to set this massive goal and then know that it's unattainable so i think at the moment my goal is keep my bank account at the level that it is now and see if i can make that happen for the next six months that's pretty much it
0: um and what's the best money you think you've ever spent
1: oh uh, oh i know what that is um that's probably buying my first dslr Because I was filming on some pretty terrible things before. I had like a really little flip cam and I still have the same DSLR that I bought, must have been seven years ago, and I still use it to film my videos on. So that was money very well spent. It's definitely earned itself out. Amazing. Can you remember how much it would have been? I guess I probably paid maybe a thousand euros in total for the, the two lenses and the body yeah mm, that's that's good isn't it that's a
0: good investment uh,
1: yeah it was a good uh, the quality difference when you look at my channel is very big and also I've taken that camera like all over the world and like on all my travels and it's pretty battered but it was it was a very good investment amazing
0: and not so much kind of money related but I just thought it'd be interesting do you have any advice for people who are wanting to kind of be online content creators themselves
1: I always hate this piece of advice but it really works for me is to be consistent it's so easy to start something and then sort of think, oh, it's not quite going the way I wanted to, or it's not having the success I wanted to, so I'm just gonna stop. I started it at a point where you couldn't make any money off of it at all. And I really just wanted to make things and be friends with the people that were making those things that I was watching. And I've really found that sticking with it has massively paid off for me. It does, you know, I get quite frustrated when people say, oh, oh YouTubers, they do nothing. They just, you know, shoot some videos. But usually the people that are successful, they've been doing it for years and years and years without being paid next to other jobs or you know I've put had they've put in the hours basically they've put in the time so that's probably what I'd say put in the time
0: yeah mm. yeah well, well I'm that actually I thought might be interesting to ask you is just having now worked on kind of both sides mm-hmm. of the kind of content creator sort of industry. So on the one hand you're been in the position where companies will approach you and mm-hmm. pay you for, to do work. but then you've also been in the position where you're working for a company and paying content creators yes. So how what kind of things did that teach you about I guess both jobs?
1: I think if you're easy and good to work with as like an online creator that is almost priceless. That is so good. And I've always been so grateful for people that I know will just deliver a really good pitch. They'll get the video on time. For me, that is worth more than anything, really. And it also means that people will come back to you for works. If you were good to work with, maybe next year they'll come back. And I think it's the same as a freelancer. If you're easy to work with as a freelancer, then people will come back. So I think that's really important. So being like a good collaborator. And also, I think as an online content creator, don't feel guilty for taking money because companies have... They don't always have massive budgets, because there's obviously, you know, different size of companies, but a lot of companies have massive budgets and they're happy to spend it on a tube poster and they always want to get more eyes onto it, reach really specific audiences. So I think definitely don't feel bad for asking for money because, you know, they're paying you for a service and they're paying you for lots of different services at the same time. And then I think, not quite the other way around, but I think as a, if you're doing something on Instagram or a blogger, don't underestimate the power of reaching out to companies because a lot of people that do that work at different brands, they don't really have time to research it that much. They're always keen to hear from new people and if someone messages them, it might just be the right fit. Also, put your location and your email address in your bio oh. because it can be impossible to find. I've, I've had so many people that I've wanted to work with and then you know, DMs are closed, they don't say what country they live in, that kind of thing. Oh, and it makes it really easy to kind of, yeah, hop to the next person. So Have
0: you ever been on the flip side where you, say, got a budget to do a bit of work when you're working for a company and you've reached out to someone um, and they've quoted their rate and you felt like, oh my gosh, this is actually too low. Like, they're yeah. really underpriced. Yeah, definitely.
1: Also, the other way around, I've also had somewhere I've gone, no, <laughs> <laughs> no <way. laughs> And it's fine because if that's the rate they want to ask, that's the rate they want to ask, but it just... At the time, I either couldn't pay for that or it wasn't worth what I was getting in return. Because people really charge anything from super low to really, really high. There's a big mix. So sometimes I see it and I'm just like, no, sorry, just can't can't pay that. I've definitely had, I think, especially illustrators tend to under quote, and I know some illustrators as well, I think, should definitely quote higher. or they will easily back down from something. So if you're like, oh, can you go a bit lower? like a really low. So I think there's always, obviously everyone's always going to negotiate a little bit. But yeah, I've I've also had someone that I asked for a quote and I got the quote back and I just wanted to email back and say, I think you should be charging at least four times what you're charging. Wow. And I think in that case, it, I couldn't work with them in the end. I was going to suggest they do a little bit extra work and then just give them, quote them, a higher price for it. Like that was higher than what they originally we're going to quote, um, because
0: I just thought that
1: can't be worth it for them. Um, and also if they're delivering really good work and, you know, you're happy to pay them more. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: definitely, definitely. So it's definitely a lesson, I think, for what, you know, just knowing your, your value and knowing that, like, actually a company is getting a lot from the work that you're doing. It's not just like they're doing you a favour. Yeah,
1: and I think setting a minimum for each project as well. I think where it often goes wrong is when it's only a little bit of work, but it's still going to take all the negotiating, all the hours of going back and forth. Count those hours as well. Like that is kind of part in your head. You have to think, will it be worth it in the end? Because if you're going to spend a day figuring out the project and the project's only going to take you two hours, you have spent that whole day going back and forth. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind as well.
0: Oh, and one last thing actually that I wanted to ask was <laughs> any tips for chasing payments?
1: Oh, fun. Um, I've had to resort to calling an office because it was about... It was over six months late. I'd emailed six many, months. many, many times. And, not, and also because I had a full-time job, I very often didn't have time to chase things up. And so I suddenly would realize, oh, it's been six months. I'd emailed loads of times. And then I think in the end, I just started calling their office. Yeah, I got paid in the end. Mm,
0: that's crazy though. Six months, that is taking...
1: But also just, I think more, it's just like not responding to emails for six months is maybe taking it. A little bit
0: far that is definitely so i guess that's something you kind of have to factor into your like budgeting as well when you're freelance it's not just the fact that you've got to manage your tax but you're kind of factoring in that you're not going to be paid the same way as when you're salaried things are going to take a little bit yeah because you think
1: you might have made that much money in a month but actually you're going to get paid like two months three months four months down the line obviously yeah chasing up is really good and also i recently read some good advice which is don't chase up like a week
0: after the payment was due
1: Just do it like the day after it was due, just do a friendly
0: reminder asking, you know, if it's coming. I'll pop links to Sunna's YouTube channel, Instagram and Twitter in the show notes. Right, now it's time for my more money section. And this week I wanted to continue the topic of chasing payments. As I know from having freelanced myself in the past, this can be such a nightmare. I asked you guys on Instagram which tools you use to help with this and the ones which came up were Wave, Free Agent and FreshBooks. You can connect FreeAgent with your bank account so you can automatically reconcile invoices with payments. FreshBooks also seems to have a really handy feature which automatically emails your client with reminders if the payment is overdue, allowing you to nag in a way which seems like it's coming from the program rather than you personally, which I think would definitely take a bit of the awkwardness out. Another one which came up was Crunch, which seems to offer similar services to FreshBooks and FreeAgent, but also rolls accounting services into the mix, meaning you could get help doing your tax return at the same time. Crunch's website says they also to offer advice on self-employed mortgages and pensions, which might be helpful for some people. The very last company which came up was actually from someone who was on the other side of the coin. That is, they were paying a freelancer. They were working at a big company which was having issues with their internal payment systems and one of their freelancers had submitted an invoice using a company called Invoice2Go. Now, the interesting thing about Invoice2Go was that it allowed the invoice to be paid by credit or debit card. In this case, it allowed the company to pay the freelancer much faster by credit card than by getting it through their internal payroll system. Now, this is definitely not an ideal solution because from looking up Invoice2Go myself, they seem to take a 2.9% fee by letting you be paid by credit or debit card. So obviously, it's better to get all your money than lose 2.9% of your paycheck. But if you really needed to be paid quickly and you had done some work for a small company or a company which were experiencing issues with their payment system, then giving them an option to pay by credit or debit card could speed things up. At the very least, by giving them a second payment option, it might just put on the added pressure they need to push the payment through. Now, I want to be clear, I haven't used any of these products personally, but from doing a little bit of Googling on them, I thought they may be helpful or at least interesting for a few of you. If you do try them out, let me know how you get on. Links to all the tools mentioned will be up on letschatcash.com. Now, lastly, one thing that I have been using personally for about six months now and find really helpful is my Monzo card. Now, I'm sure loads of you know what this is, but for those who don't, Monzo is essentially a bank account which comes with a really great app. The reason it's different from most regular bank accounts is because it works in real time. So as soon as you spend money on your Monzo card, it instantly displays on your bank balance, which makes it really easy to keep track of your spending. The way I use it is by transferring my spending money, so this is what I've calculated I have available to spend after bills, travels, etc., onto my Monzo, and then using that for my day-to-day spending. I find this really helps me stick to my monthly budget. I also love that you get a little report on the app at the end of the month showing you where you spent most of your money. For example, food or travel. Mine is always going out for dinner, FYI. Now, this is not sponsored. I don't get any kickback from this. But this month, I have a referral link from Monzo where if you sign up, you get £10. So because it's Christmas, I thought, why not share it here? I believe it's only valid during the month of December. So if you'd like to try it out, I'll pop the link up on the show notes. Okay, that's everything for this week and I'm afraid for this year because I'm going to take a short break over Christmas. I will be back in January, though, with more episodes, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any. I'll still be talking and posting about all things personal finance over the break on Twitter and Instagram, at Let's Chat Cash. If you have any ideas for topics or guests you'd like me to feature in the next series, get in touch. All my contact details are on letschatcash.com, where you'll also find all the episode show notes, too. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give it a rating and review on your podcast app, as it really helps other people to find the show. Cheers, and I'll see you in the new year.